Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. So God, I pray if we're not broken this morning that you would crush us in your goodness and your faithfulness. God, because only by being destroyed and by broken down can be we can we be rebuilt for your name and for your glory. So God, I pray that you would use this broken man and that I could speak your truth with authority and with grace. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've said, we're, we're transitioning out of the book of Habakkuk into Ezra and Nehemiah, and Habakkuk takes place as the Babylonian Empire is starting to take over most of the Near East, and uh, Habakkuk sees all of this happening. He sees the dominoes starting to fall, and it's inevitable that the uh, nation of Israel is going to be taken over by the Babylonians. And over the last several hundred years, uh, the nation of Israel has undergone a massive moral decline, and my brother covered this in the first uh, week of the Broken series. But ultimately what happened is the, the Israelites went through cycles of abandoning the laws and the way of life that God had set for them, laws that were made for their good and for their flourishing. But they were wise in their own eyes, as we all are at times, and so they abandoned God, they abandoned the, the laws and the institutions of worship and the process of sanctification that he gave them, and they went their own way. And they gave themselves up to the things of this world and began to follow and worship other gods. And every once in a while, God would send a prophet or a righteous king, and he would start to, to point them back towards himself. And they would follow for a little while, but inevitably they would end up right back in their sin abandoning the God who provided for them, who protected them, who was faithful to them. And so the moral decline continued to the point where one of the kings of Israel actually sacrificed his son to one of the demonic gods of the time. He actually burned him alive. How timely is that for our day? And so God gave them up to their sin. He said, okay, you want to walk this way? Go ahead. I'll let you go. And so he gave them up into their own sinful passions and also to destruction and to exile at the hands of the Babylonians. And this was actually a fulfillment of a prophecy uh, in Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30. Uh, during uh, that time, God was still establishing his laws and the way of life that he wanted uh, the people of Israel to follow. And so through Moses, God tells his people that they will end up turning from him. They will give themselves over to sin and start following other gods. And the only way back to him is that God says, I'm going to have to bring people from foreign lands to destroy you and to carry you off into slavery, and only then will your hearts turn back to me. And so this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. You see, God would rather see you taken from your home, carted off as a slave, and see your city and your life in a pile of ruins than leave you in your sin. He is too jealous for you to leave you in your sin. And so if you are stubborn if, in your sin, if you think that you know what's best and that your plans for your life are better than God's plans and what God says is right is not right in your eyes and you do what's right in your own eyes, if you say as the Israelites did in Deuteronomy 29 verses 19, the Israelites said this in their hearts, I will be safe even though I persist 
and going my own way. If that's the state of your heart this morning, God would rather send you into exile and slavery and see your home and your life in ruins than leave you there. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. So the Babylonians invaded, then they left the whole city of Jerusalem and the temple in complete ruins, and it was completely destroyed, and they were carried off into exile for approximately 70 years. And during that 70 years, the Babylonian Empire was conquered and absorbed by the Persian Empire. And at the time, uh, Cyrus was king of the Persians. And because the Persian Empire was so large, it actually occupied most of the known world at that time. Because it was so large and so diverse, the Persians thought that it would be much easier to govern their massive empire by letting the people keep their culture and their religion uh, rather than forcing them to adopt the Persian way of life. And so this is the history that sets the stage for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, like I said, that we're going to be spending this week and the next three weeks in. And so in 539 BC, King Cyrus uh, makes a decree that the people of Israel will be released from captivity. And because of the favor of God, he granted them all of the money and all of the resources that they would need to rebuild the temple and the city, paid out of the empire's treasury. Talk about favor. And he allowed as many Israelites as he wanted to to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so uh, when the Babylonians uh, destroyed the temple and raided it, they also took uh, all of the articles of the temple that they used to serve in the, in the temple, and they took all those. And so Cyrus gave all of those back, whatever remained of them. He gave them back to the people so that they could use them uh, to help to rebuild the temple and worship in the temple the way that they were supposed to. And then we read in chapter 2, in Ezra chapter 2, that in 538 B.C., the first group of people uh, returned to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild uh, the temple. And it also says that they were led by a man named Zerubbabel. And that will become important later, so you need to remember that. And then the construction of the temple started around 536 B.C., and it took about 20 years to complete, so that makes the completion around 516 B.C., and then the book of Ezra at that point skips to, five, to 458 B.C. when Ezra himself finally arrives in Jerusalem. And it says that Ezra was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. And his purpose in coming to Jerusalem and to the temple was to bring uh, more priests and temple servants so that they could serve the first group of exiles that had made the trek uh, from the uh, empire of Persia back to Jerusalem. And then in 444 B.C., Nehemiah arrives Uh, in uh, Jerusalem with the second group of exiles, and their purpose was to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so this is just a very very brief history, history, 30,000-foot view of the the time frame of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And like I said, we're going to be focusing on these for the next three weeks. And this is also uh, an equip group series, which means that uh, there are going to be groups of people that are going to take some extra time and dive in. So I want to encourage all of you to, to read along with us over these next four weeks Uh, to read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I think that that will really benefit you. So for the rest of this morning, I'm going to focus on the first part of Ezra. Now again, Ezra 1 tells us that through King Cyrus, God was fulfilling his prophecy that he made in Deuteronomy 30, that he would exile them and then bring them back to Jerusalem and back to himself. And so Cyrus makes his decree. He sends the Jews back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And then chapter 2 is a list of names and leaders, firstly Zerubbabel and the, the, the head priest uh, for that group of exiles, Joshua. And it also lists some of the provisions that they were given. 
So the first group of exiles sets out to return home, and then they arrive in Jerusalem sometime in the year 538 BC, and that's where we're going to pick up in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip to verse 6. Now when the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. Skip down to verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So we see here that once uh, the, the people got settled, uh, back in Jerusalem, the first thing that they did was build an offer, build an altar, and offer sacrifices to God. Something that hadn't been done in almost 50 years. See, offering sacrifices was uh, the center of Jewish traditions. It's the way that they related to God in the Old Covenant. It was how they atoned for sins. It was how they thanked God. It was how they worshipped Him. And they knew that it would be some time before the temple would be rebuilt, but that did not stop them from starting the process of walking back to God. Skip down to Ezra 3, verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. They started to build the foundations of the temple. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity, it took them almost two years to start to build the temple. They offered sacrifices for two years before they began to lay the foundations. You see, in order to lay the foundation, you have to prepare the way for the foundation. In order to, for the temple to be rebuilt, it had to be destroyed. In order for the people to be rebuilt, they had to be humbled. They had to become desperate for God. And so Joshua and Zerubbabel were both aware of the history of the moral decline of the people of Israel. And so they knew that they could not afford to wait for the temple to be built before they started to point the people back to God, before they started to get back to the basics of their faith. Otherwise, they would end up in the same situation as they were before. They had to start at the basics of their relationship with God in the Old Covenant, and that was offering sacrifices. See, sacrifices were an acknowledgement that uh, God was in the position of authority, that God's plan was right, that God's way of life was correct. And so uh, what, they, what sacrifices were, it was a humbling of ourselves to understand that the price for going against God's plan was death. The Bible calls that sin. And the atonement, the price for atonement of that sin was blood. It was also an acknowledgement of, of thankfulness to God because he was the provider, he was their protector, and so all of their crops and, and everything, every uh, child that was born into their flocks of the goats and the sheep and the, and the cattle, they would offer a portion of that back to God in, in remembrance that he was their protector and their provider. So what they were really doing over those two years is they were reestablishing a right view of who they were and a right view of who God was. That's what they were doing for two years. They started back at the basics. So what happens when you find yourself in ruins? Maybe you've been running from God for most of your life or just for a part of your life, but your life is in shambles. 
Or maybe it's not in shambles yet, but like in the book of Habakkuk, you can see the dominoes starting to fall. Or maybe like in Ezra, the generations that have gone before you did what was right in their own eyes. They went against God's best for their life. And you're the first person in your family to turn away from that and to start walking towards the Lord. But you find yourself sitting in rubble and mess that the previous generations have left for you. And you don't know where to start. Start at the basics. Reestablish a right view of who you are and who God is. The New Testament calls this pure spiritual milk. Turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 9. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put away your former ways. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We're going to stop there. Long for pure spiritual milk like newborn infants. My son is seven months old now, almost eight months. So he is not a newborn. And still, there are very few things that that kid longs for more than mama's milk. And he has the body to testify to that. (laughs) And so what is this pure spiritual milk? What are we supposed to long for? Well, it's the basics of the gospel. And so this could be a a whole uh, message in itself, so I'm just going to hit some highlights quick. So this is pure spiritual milk, asking questions like, who does the Bible say that I am without God? Who does the Bible say that I am with God? What is sin? What is the punishment for sin? Who is Jesus Christ? Why did he die on the cross? What did his death and his resurrection accomplish? What is the extent of God's love for me? What is salvation from sin? What is grace and mercy? And to what extent has grace and mercy been shown to me through Christ? How can I please God? And how do I become more like Jesus? You see, if you are longing for the answers to these questions, if you are digging deep into the word, looking into these questions, if you are meditating on them, that is longing for the pure spiritual milk. And listen, I've been a Christian since I was five, been following hard after him for at least the last 15 years, and I have not reached the depths or the heights or the breadth of the pure spiritual milk. See, no matter how mature of a Christian you are, you will always need the pure spiritual milk, and it will become even more sweeter and more satisfying the more that you dig into it. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Let's move on to verse 4. And as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, just like the men in Ezra were laying the foundations and setting its stones in place, you are a living stone being built into a spiritual house, being built into a temple that will offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Romans 12 said that those spiritual sacrifices are ourselves. We offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice. I think that that parallel to Ezra is so cool. Moving on to verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. That's Jesus. 
chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you because you are a living stone being built with the cornerstone. That's pretty awesome. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We're going to stop there quick because I need to prepare you for verse 9 because verse 9 is awesome. Verse nine is awesome. Maybe you're sitting in that pile of ruins and you don't know where to start or maybe you don't even know who you are anymore. You have no identity and no purpose. Look no further than verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, church, that is your identity. If you believe in Jesus this morning, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You belong to God. And if you need to know what your purpose is this morning, if you need to know what God's will is for your life, start here. Your purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and out of death and into his marvelous light. You see, your your identity and your purpose are pivotal to remember, especially in times of rebuilding. Looking around at the rubble and the mess and thinking ahead of all the, the work that needs to be done, It can be disheartening. It can be discouraging. It could lead you to despair. But when you know your identity and your purpose, you have a foundation to stand on when you're walking through those struggles and that adversity, when you're fighting through those challenges. Because there will be challenges. There will be suffering involved. There will be opposition. Remember, in order to be rebuilt, something must be torn down. In order for God to do something new, the old has to die. In order to be rebuilt, we must be humbled. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What an amazing passage. It starts with humbling yourself. You see, you would think that in sitting in a pile of ruins, that would be humbling enough. But as humans, and even as Christians, we are stubborn and we're arrogant, and so we think that we can rebuild whatever mess this is under our own strength. Or maybe not even that. Maybe we think that we can rebuild that mess out of the previous giftings that God has given us. And so we say, yeah, okay, I I got this, God. We can do this, right? We can rebuild this, can't we? And God says, yes, we can. But I have something more. 
I did not bring you to this broken down city. I did not allow your life to be torn down so that it could be built up to its previous strength, to its previous calling, to its previous glory, to its previous gifts, to its previous purpose. I am doing something new. And so in order to do that, you need to be be made you. You need to humble yourself. Because at the proper time, I will exalt you. I will build you up. I will restore you. And I will make you new. And it's going to be uncomfortable. There are going to be things that you don't understand or things that you can't see how I'm working and that's going to make you anxious. And so the devil will try to exploit that anxiousness. He'll try to use that to devour what I'm trying to do in your life. So cast all of your anxieties on me. I care for you. Resist him firm in your faith. Let me take care of it. Resist him and he will flee from you. But you will struggle. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be some season when you're doubting my plan or when you can't see the other side of the wilderness and you don't know if you can take another step. But it will only last a little while. And at the proper time, I will pour out the abundance of my grace on you because I have called you to my eternal glory in Christ. I have called you to my eternal glory in Christ and the days that you doubted my plan will be made clear and the pain that you suffered will have purpose and at the proper time, I myself will restore you. I will rebuild you. And it will be more glorious and more purposeful and more meaningful than before. At the proper time. Everyone say proper time. You're getting a little sleepy. Say it again. You will suffer a little while. And that suffering may be disciplined from the Father for sin. And in that fire, God is trying to refine you. And the question is, will you obey him? Will you allow what is not pleasing to him to be burned away? Will you turn from your sin and repent? See, to be rebuilt, we need to be broken down. And the rebuilding has little to do with you except your cooperation and having a humble spirit and coming alongside of what God is trying to do in you. Maybe your suffering may be purposefully self-inflicted. See, as Christians, we are called to a continual state of repentance, and we always need to be searching our hearts for things that don't please God, for things that are keeping us from living in full freedom in his grace. And so maybe isn't God taking you through a specific season of wilderness right now, but by his grace, you are seeking out the dark places of your heart so that the light and the light, light and the life of Christ can shine in. And you want to expose those dark places and make them obedient to Christ. You see, whenever we're going through the process of repentance, there's a certain level of discomfort that's involved. You are breaking down walls so that the light and the life of Christ can shine through. You are turning over the soil, breaking up the hard dirt so that it's soft and loose and primed for new seed and new growth and a new harvest. And all of this takes work. It all takes discomfort but it will only last for a little while. 
Because that suffering, that refining, it's removing those imperfections. It's rooting out and filling the holes in the weak and the hollow places. You see, sometimes we want to be built right now, but the rebuilder knows that in your current state, building on your current foundation with the current gifts that you have, with the current materials that, he's, that are available to him, he knows that you would not be able to withstand the weight of the glorious calling that you have on your life. You would not be able to withstand the tension. And so we come to God and say, God, rebuild me, use me, I'm ready. And the rebuilder says, it's not the proper time. Come on, do your work. I am working. Just not at the level that you want me to. I'm not building up right now. I'm clearing the rubble. I'm leveling the foundation. I'm widening and deepening your base. I am resetting the cornerstone. I am resetting Jesus in your life so that as a living stone, you can be built on top of him. And at the proper time, I will restore you. I will build you up. I will make you new. You will be rebuilt. At the proper time. There's one more thing that I want to point out in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. As I said, I really encourage you to read through these two books with us. And you'll notice as you're reading through them that there are several chapters worth of genealogies. Uh, and most of the time we skip over those, because, mostly because we can't pronounce the name. So we're just like, Haban, nope. Um, <laughs> and you just skip it. But I think it's also because... Uh, we just feel like there's no theological substance there. Like, well, like, okay, yeah, it's a list of names. Who cares? So hopefully I can change your perspective this morning. Um, first of all, uh, the, the Jewish culture uh, holds genealogies very dear. It was very important to them for a couple reasons. One, it's historical. So it, it's a historical list of, the, of real people in a real time, in history, doing real things. So it's historical. But it was also a way to honor them. It was a way to look back at your past and say, yeah, my dad was there. He rebuilt the temple. He rebuilt the wall. And so how cool is it that there were people in both in Ezra and Nehemiah who were doing normal work and their names are listed in the Bible by name. You see, the men and the women that were doing the physical work, the work that they were doing was not all that extraordinary. They were mixing mortar, they were cutting wood, laying bricks, setting stones, clearing away rubble, digging holes, setting up gates. The physical work that they were doing was not ordinary, but what they were actually doing was building the kingdom. They were building the kingdom by doing ordinary work, and their names are listed in the Bible. Now, the Bible is complete, but God's story is not done. And that should encourage you, church. It should challenge you, church. Because God is still rebuilding and still writing his story through you. And the ordinary things that you are doing are setting the foundations of faith for the generations that come after you. And so, 10 generations from now, will they look back at you and say, yeah, that's where it changed. Jared and Rochelle, that's where, it, where that sin was broken off. Kip and Heidi, that's where our family changed forever. Tim and Steph Wolf, that's where it changed. That's where it happened. 
not for our glory, but not to point to the people that were rebuilt, but to point to the rebuilder. One more thing on genealogies, and then we'll close. Who remembers King David? Right? Yeah? Okay. The, the second king of Israel, he succeeded Saul, killed the giant with a sling and a stone, strangled bears and lions and wolves and tigers, oh my, with his hands. <laughs> the psalmist, the man after God's own heart, are we all on the same page of what David we're talking about? Okay. Well, when David was anointed king, God made a promise to David and also to the people of Israel that someone would sit on his throne, someone from his genealogy would sit on the throne for all of eternity. That was a promise that God had made them. And so, do you remember in the beginning when I said that Zerubbabel was the leader of the first group of exiles? Well, guess what? Zerubbabel was in the line of David. And now he didn't sit on the throne because there was no throne. They were being ruled by an empire. But he was the leader of the reestablishment of Jerusalem and the temple. And the people would have known that his lineage was from David. And so what an encouragement to them that they had a physical representation of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God right in front of them. What an encouragement to them. And so when the, when the people were facing opposition, which they did, a lot of it, they could look not only to Zerubbabel's leadership, but to his lineage and know that God was in this. God was faithful. The promises that he made hundreds of years ago are still true today, and we can see the representation of it. God is faithful. He is going before us. He is fighting on our behalf. That's pretty cool, right? Still think genealogies are boring? I am glad you said that. The Bible's going to blow your mind even more. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Now, Matthew was a gospel that was basically written for the Jews. And like I said, in Jewish culture, um, genealogies were very important. And so when Matthew was writing his gospel, he included the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning because he knew that that would speak to the Jewish people that would read about who Jesus was. So I'm not going to read all of the genealogy. I'm just going to hit the highlights. You can do that on your own. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. Skip to verse 6. And Jesse the father of David, and David the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Skip to verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Verse 16, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Zerubbabel was the great, 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 lots more greats, grandfather of Jesus. Not only was the temple being rebuilt by someone in David's line, he was also in the line of Jesus, the man who would ultimately render the temple unnecessary. The man who would tear the curtain in two and allow us free and open access into the presence of God. 
Now, I doubt it, but I wonder if Zerubbabel ever thought that the Messiah, his great-great-great-grandson, would learn and worship and preach at the very temple that he was building. I wonder if he ever thought just as he was receiving opposition in his rebuilding project that the Messiah would also be receiving opposition at the same temple in his own rebuilding project. Turn to John 2, verses 18 through 19. And Jesus has just entered the temple and uh, turned over the, the tables of the money changers and drove everyone out of the temple because they had turned God's house into a market. And so the Jews said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is standing in front of the same temples that, that Zerubbabel built, receiving opposition from the Pharisees, and, and, the, and they say, what sign do you show us? Jesus says, tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Which is ludicrous because it took hundreds of tradesmen 20 years to build the temple. Ain't no way Jesus is going to do it by himself in three days. But as we all know, Jesus was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. He was talking about the single act of dying and being raised back to life that would change the very nature of what the temple is. You see, in Jesus, the temple is not a place. It's a person. In Jesus, the temple is not a building. It's you. So Jesus is saying, my great-great-grandfather built this temple, but you're not going to need it anymore because I'm going to die. I will be rebuilt, and I will rebuild new temples in you. I'm doing my own rebuilding project. See, just like that temple was torn down and rebuilt, I'm doing the same thing in you. And Jesus is saying that to you this morning. And what you're going through right now may be painful. It may be humbling. It may be stripping away some things that you think you need in your life. It may be revealing some hidden inadequacies that are underneath the surface and it makes you uncomfortable. But Jesus says, I'm building a new temple. I'm building a better temple. I'm not just building one temple. I'm building millions of temples. People will no longer have to come to the temple to be in my presence because I am taking my presence to them through you. And just like that temple had to be broken down to be rebuilt, and just like I have to die to tear down the nature of the temple so that it can be rebuilt in my resurrection, you need to die before you can be rebuilt into a new temple for the presence of Jesus. So listen this morning, church, if you want to be rebuilt, if you are laying in a pile of ruins and you need to be rebuilt, you don't need 100 years, you don't need 100 days, all you need is an encounter with Jesus, and in a moment, everything changes. It won't happen overnight. There will still be battles that you need to fight and seasons of struggle and adversity that you need to fight through. 
But the Bible says that the moment you encounter Jesus and believe in him for the salvation of your sins, you are made into a new person. You are rebuilt. There will still be some refining that needs to be done. There will still be walls that need to be torn down. And there will still be some leveling of the foundations, but at the proper time. Jesus himself will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. And he will rebuild you. If you want to be rebuilt, you need to be broken down. You need to humble yourself so that at the proper time, he will exalt you. So that at the proper time, you will be rebuilt. See, God wants to do something new in you. If there's something in your life that you've been struggling with, if you've been going through a season of being torn down, take heart, the suffering lasts for a little while. And if you humble yourself and if you let him, that process of refining that you've been going through will bear fruit and he will build you up and it will be more glorious and more purposeful and more meaningful than it ever was before. So church, take heart. The suffering lasts for a little while. But he will build you up. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, thank you for the old temple. so that we can see how amazing the new temple is. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that especially in our brokenness, You see the future glory that you're going to to rebuild us to. So God, I pray that you would help us see that. God, I pray that you would break us down so that you would build us up. God, I pray that if we've been running from you, that you would continue to pursue us. God, do whatever it takes to turn our hearts back to you. And from that place of brokenness, would you rebuild us into a temple that carries your presence. God, may we understand as we go through this week that we are carrying you with us. And that there are people around us that you want to take your presence to, and that presence is inside of us. God, may you open our eyes to how we're supposed to display your presence this week. Father, rebuild us. Make us new. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.